Father, I, I thank you for loving us. I thank you, Lord, for the blessing of being able to gather in this place to worship together. And Lord, to seek you out. Father, I'm so thankful for your word, what you have written on our hearts, what you have given to us. Father, it amazes me that you would choose to do such for us, that you would pour out words on page, that you would get a message to us across space and time, that you would find this fantastic, wonderful way to move beyond, beyond yourself, beyond us, Father, to bring us your word. I'm so thankful, Father, that your word is clear, that the true sound principles of the lives that you've called us to are written that we might know and understand. Lord, you've given us a way to walk and a way to live and to love and a vision for eternity. And we praise you for it and we thank you. And Father, this morning I pray specifically as we study that you will get into the nitty-gritty of our personal lives. That you will touch us where we hurt. That you will reach us, Father, where we are. And that you will show us some of Jesus today. For we realize that without Jesus we have no hope. That Jesus is our hope, our salvation, our redemption. Father, that his death on the cross saved our lives. And he replaced us there. And Lord, we just praise you for that. We ask this morning that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And you would pour out your words again into our hearts. Give us ears to hear, Father. And grow us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 20, and verse 1. Chapter 20, verse 1. If you'd like to get a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll get one to you. High priority in the branch that everyone have a Bible in hand. You should be reading and hearing and knowing these words for yourselves. Again, we've said before, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take this, whichever Bible you can take it home with you. And make it your Bible. Write in it. Use it. Know it. Live it. Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. When you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people. He shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord, your God, is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. The officers shall speak to the people saying, Who is the man who built a new house and not dedicated it? Let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise he might die in the battle and another man would dedicate it. And who is the man who has planted a vineyard and has not begun to use its fruit? Let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise he might die in the battle and another man would begin to use its fruit. And who is the man that is engaged to a woman and has not married her? Let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise he might die in the battle and another man would marry her. And then the officer shall speak further to the people and say, Who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house, so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. Which administration dropped the ball before 9-11? Which one in the years leading up the terrorism that we have seen in our country is to blame. Whose fault is it? No doubt many of you by now have seen at least excerpts of the Chris Wallace-Bill Clinton interview where that finger was out and it was wagging. And I couldn't tell if our former president was wagging his finger or wagging the dog, but either way, that interview showed once again that there is a great division in this country and it's all because of terrorism. Tom was just saying this morning, it's interesting that terrorism has has driven so much of the division. And we don't see that, do we? What we see is political parties battling each other, as opposed to the fact that terrorism has changed our way of life. And has brought out emotions deep within us, and frustrations we never thought we would deal with, not in this generation. But you know, all this rancor and finger pointing reminds me of something I read a few years back. 
regarding the world and, and the present generation in which we live. Back in the 1970s, there was a public service announcement that came out on television. Some of you adults may remember this. It said, it's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? Now, you could change that in the 1980s. The message could have been, it's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your parents are? <laughs> it's a little different in that decade. By the 1990s, you could have said, it's 10 o'clock. Do you know where you are? And now... In the new millennium, it's 10 o'clock. Does anyone know where Bin Laden is? <laughs> the real question before us. Here's the thing. For all of the blaming and the finger pointing and the backbiting that we see going on in Washington and, and spreading out into our country, it is easy to forget what our men and women in uniform understand all too well, and that is simply this, that freedom is not free. Freedom comes at a price. And so it was for Israel coming into the promised land. Moses isn't instructing the people on battle readiness just in case. He doesn't tell them, hey, if in fact you get attacked or if you have to go to war, here's how you prepare. What he says is when you go to war, in other words, you will fight. You will be at war. You will deal with battles. Conflicts are coming. War will be waged. Battles are assured. And here's the uh, good news this morning, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, Christians, conflicts are coming. War will be waged. Battles are assured. Grace is not free. Grace is not free. Now, we, we think that it is. You might say, well, wait a minute, Rick, I've heard that you can't do anything to earn grace. I thought that grace was free, that God gave, gave grace as, as a free gift of salvation. Oh, absolutely, grace is freely given, but it costs Jesus everything. It is not a free concept. We have taken it in modern Christianity and made it a free concept and said, hey, I got grace. Right on. So all I really have to do is show up at church once every you know, few years. All I really have to do is have a Bible. All I really need to do is pray on occasion. Because i got grace. And in that kind of thinking game, we trample on grace. We walk all over the blood of Jesus, spilled on the ground for us. Grace is not free. It was paid for brutally. Ephesians 2.13, Paul says, In Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near. How, Paul? By the blood of Christ. Grace came at a great price. But please understand that though Jesus paid it all, grace, salvation, and adoption as children of the Lord does not guarantee smooth sailing. In fact, it guarantees the opposite. Accepting the grace of Christ, becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of His, means that you will face persecution. You will deal with battle. Wars will be waged. Turn your Bibles to John 15 for a moment. Keep your finger there in Deuteronomy 20. John chapter 15, verse 18. John 14, 15, and 16 are an incredible section there. Those three chapters of Scripture where it's a Thursday night that Jesus was betrayed. This is at the Last Supper, and He's speaking, and He is just pouring out all kinds of, of hopeful words and thoughts to His apostles. And in the midst of this, He says the following, verse 18 of chapter 15, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But in all these things, they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He says, he who hates me, hates my father. And if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Jesus said, when you offer grace, what it does is it shines a flashlight on sin. Now, now we can see. 
When grace was paid on the cross, now we have a picture of sin. It's the cross of Calvary. It's the blood pouring out of Jesus. It's the thorns on His brow. The nails in His hands and feet. The stripes across His back. That is the end result of sin. That's where we should be. And that's what sin is a picture of. Or that is a picture of sin. And once that cross was hung up, the world then had a choice. To hate what they were seeing, or to accept that we all need the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's the deal. Jesus says, hey, if they hate you, understand that they hated me first. Conflicts are coming. War will be waged. Battles are assured. President Bush made a statement early on in this whole conflict. He said, this is a different kind of war. Remember him saying that? He said it several times in the last few years. This is a different kind of war. Well, let me help you understand. The Bible clearly speaks of a different kind of war as well. And it's the kind of war waged by people who call themselves Christians. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. Paul is writing to young Pastor Tim and he says, Pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness. And then he says that famous line, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you were made and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It's a different kind of war to be fought differently. He says, Fight the good fight of faith. How do I do that, Paul? Pursue righteousness. You've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, something you didn't earn, something you couldn't do, but pursue it once He's given it to you. Continue to seek to be holy. Pursue godliness and faith and love and perseverance and that great weapon of warfare, gentleness. It's a different kind of war. Waged by love. The battles that we fight are spiritual, they're legitimate, and they're assured. They will come. You are going to face hard times. Prepare, be ready for it. Before the people of Israel went into the promised land, Moses said the battles are coming. And so I say this morning, before we enter into the promised land, the battles are coming. And we are going to have to fight with the tools of gentleness and love and faithfulness. It's a different kind of war. And Moses told the people, I don't want you to be surprised or fearful when the battles do come. Back in verse 8 again, he says, The officer shall speak further to the people and say, Who's the man who's afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. In other words, go hard or go home. Fight fearlessly. Don't be caught off guard or alarmed when things heat up. And I believe the application is as real for us today as it was for them then. Gang, it's going to heat up. Tough times will come. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Conflicts are coming. War will be waged. Battles are assured. Tough times are soon to come. But what I want to talk to you about today is a curious approach to being battle-ready. I don't just want you to be all bummed out and worried. Okay, what, when's the next shoe going to drop? What's going to happen in my life? How am I going to be persecuted? Don't stress about that. Because God has a wonderful way of preparing, preparing people before they deploy. Before we're sent out. You can call it God's boot camp. I want to talk this morning about what you do before you go to war. Because there are some very specific things that Moses taught the people that apply to us today. Right in the middle of this chapter on warfare, Moses talks about military deferments. He talks about exemptions from fighting, reasons to stay home. And in our text, we'll see three examples of this. I'll give them to you right now. If you happen to be a note-taker, you might want to jot these down. And I encourage you to be a note-taker. By the way, even if you lose the notes promptly as you get up and leave, you know, leave it on the seat, throw it away, whatever, that's fine. If you write it down, it's getting in. It's just another way to get it in. Well, here are the three exemptions. Aside from one that we already saw, which was fear. If you're fearful, head on home. We don't, we don't need the, the fear mongers here. But there are three others. Interesting. Home builders. Home builders are exempt. Vine dressers. Vine dressers are also exempt. And honeymooners. Honeymooners are exempt from going, which is great because if you've just built a house, have a vineyard, and you're getting married, you don't have to go to war at all. <laughs> you're protected again, you're exempt. You get to, to hang back. Look at these three real quickly here. Verse 5 The officer shall speak to the people, saying, Who is the man that has built a new house and has not dedicated it? 
Let him depart and return to his house, otherwise he might die in the battle, and another man would dedicate it. And you could hear, you know, as they're giving out the call for war, guys are just going to work real fast building a house, as fast as they can, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just building my new house. <laughs> but this was an exemption, a legitimate exemption. But what does it mean here, to dedicate the house? Because the person exempt from warfare, the home builder, was to dedicate their home. But what does that mean? Commentators Kyle and Delich, a couple of names you should know, dedication or consecration of a house, they say, was by means of taking possession of it and dwelling in it. Furthermore, entrance into the house was probably connected with a hospitable entertainment. According to Josephus, the enjoyment of the new home was to last a year. So here's the deal for the Jewish people. Moses said if you built a new house, stay home, enjoy it, stay in the house, and dedicate it. But how do you dedicate a house? By having people in. Because most of you probably realize this. A house really doesn't feel like a home until you start to get some socializing going on in there. We have a saying in our house that it's not home until we have Christmas. And we moved a lot around a lot in our earlier years of ministry, Cheryl and the kids and I. And we always kind of targeted the first Christmas after we got into the house as the time when it started to feel like home. Because you had people in, and you had family around, and that was the time that you started to settle and feel like, yeah, now I'm home. This is good. We were to stay home, Moses tells the children of Israel, you're to stay home to dedicate the house. So it feels like home. Now we, some of you know, just finished building our house. We've been in it over a year now, which has been great. But prior to that, it took between all the, the things needed, the... Um, What's the permit? Thank you for the permit. <laughs> Something I'm 42 now. Sometimes, sometimes it just goes. <laughs> anyway, permits. Just to get the permits took months, and then the building. And once it was all said and done, we were about 16 months just kind of living out of suitcases and bumming off of friends, and you know, doing the best we could just to go from place to place. But we had a saying through that whole time that we would say over and over, especially on the really frustrating days. Remember what the saying is, Cheryl? First night in the new house. I just look at Sean and go, first night in the new house. You know, you get another permit for $500, first night in the new house. And we said it over and over, first night in the new house. I could not wait until the first night in the new house, but you know what happened? The first night in the new house, I was so tired, I didn't enjoy the first night in the new house. It was absolutely wiped out. In fact, it took weeks to get to where it started feeling like home. It felt empty at first. It was beautiful. But I walk around going, I don't feel home yet. And then people started coming in, and things started happening, and now I live in a dedicated house. I live in a house that's been consecrated. We've had people, just, just this last Sunday, we had another newcomer dessert. We had a great time. Carol and I love that. But the Sunday before that, we had a, had a meeting of everyone going to Israel. And having people in and, and sharing in our lives, it makes the house feel like home. And that's what's being talked about here. You go home and you stay in that house for a year and you consecrate it and you dedicate it and you have your friends and your family all around consecrate the home. Then, then you can go to war. It's a good principle. I like the idea behind it. But gang, understand that the biblical picture of a home is not wood and brick and mortar and drywall. The biblical picture of a home is what you're looking at right now. If you would just look around for a moment in the barn, go ahead and look, look at each other. This, that's, that's the wood and brick and mortar and drywall. And I know you're looking at some people going, yeah, that guy is a brick. But we're all being built together as a spiritual house. And the way we dedicate and consecrate this house game is in time spent together. Which makes what's happening this morning all the more special as far as I'm concerned. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter says, You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But listen to that verse. Peter says, first you're built into a spiritual house. Then you offer spiritual sacrifices. You build the house before you go to war. You dedicate the home before you fight. Before you sacrifice, the house needs to be in order. And that was an important principle for the people of Israel. Now the second group of people, verse 6 says, Who is the man who has planted a vineyard and has not begun to use its fruit? Let him depart and return to his house, otherwise he might die in the battle, and another man would begin to use its fruit. So the second group are the vine dressers. 
Now the home builders, they had to dedicate their house. The vine dressers got to delight in the fruit of their labor. Delight in the fruit of their labor. If, if you build, uh, if you plant a vineyard, enjoy it before you go to war. Now back in Leviticus chapter 19, we studied previously about this. It says that when you enter land and, and plant all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you, it shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year, all of its fruit shall be holy and offer praise to the Lord. In the fifth year, you are to eat of its fruit, that its fruit, that it may increase, that its yield may increase for you. I am the Lord your God. So the law forbidden eating any of the fruit until the fifth year. So if you just planted a vineyard, you're five years off from war. Or if you're in the second or third year, you've got two or three more years to go where you're allowed to stay home, take care, cultivate that field before you went off to war. A five-year deferment. That's pretty cool. Just so you could eat some grapes? I'm trying to understand this. Gang, it's about delighting in the fruit of your labor. God says, you're working hard on that vineyard. I want you to enjoy the work that has gone into it. And listen, I've got to say this. A, a word to you vine growers here today. You're looking around saying, do we have any? Yeah, we have a bunch of vine growers. They're called professional people. If you have a job, you're a vine grower. And if you have a job, listen, the Lord wants you to delight in the fruit of your labor. Unfortunately, I've heard a lot of complaints about jobs over the years. A lot of people who have come to me and said, Rick, I'm just so frustrated at work, I don't even know what to do there. None of them are Christians. I'm the only one. I'm fighting battles right and left. I don't enjoy this. I don't like it. And I think God would say, Vine growers, stop whining. Think about it. Look at that slow response. Some of you, it would be dangerous to tell a joke on Saturday night because you burst out laughing Sunday morning. You know, it's going to be good. Stop whining. Stop whining about your labors. Listen, there is fruit there. And I truly believe that each one of us, if we have a job of any kind, God has placed us there because there is blessing to be had. There is fruit to be enjoyed that He wants us to enjoy, but we're not going to see it if all we're doing is complaining about it. Okay, the vineyard in Scripture is a picture of fruitful labor. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 13 says, God will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock and the land which He swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all people. And Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 7 says, Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already appointed your works and there is a blessing in the vineyard it's the work of your hands don't miss it now whether you're a mechanic or a contractor or a teacher or a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker (laughs) delight in the fruit of your labor listen it is not unspiritual to enjoy your job it is not unspiritual to be in a profession that you like or even if you're not sure you like the profession you can still like the people You can still enjoy the fruit of the labor. There's something good about the job. Look for it. Paul says to the church in Colossae, chapter 3, verse 23, he says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. That would change everything, by the way. When you trudge out of bed early in the morning, you're heading into work, and you're just grousing, and you're grumpy, it's just going to be another day at the office. If on the way there you stop for a moment... And you prayed, if you're driving, please do it with your eyes open. And you prayed, Lord, show me what you have for me today. Show me what you want me to do today. Give me a divine appointment in the office or out on the field or wherever I am. Let today be used for you, Paul says. Whatever you do, do your work as for the Lord rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Which is great because you've just gone over the boss's head. You have a boss that you serve. And his name is Jesus. And he is over any other boss that you have. And he's the one who has you where you are. Praise him for it. Enjoy it. Enjoy the fruit of your labor. So home builders dedicate before they go to war. Vine dressers delight in the fruit before you go to war. And finally, verse 7, And who is the man that is engaged to a woman and has not married her? 
let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise he might die in the battle and another man would marry her. Which is really funny to me. I remember on the um, night of our wedding, Sean and I got married, my brother got up to do the toast. And the first thing he said was, we're all really really glad that Rick and Cheryl are married here because if, if Cheryl hadn't married Rick, you know, he probably would have married someone else. So it was a brilliant statement. <laughs> and here we find the same thing. Otherwise, he might die in battle and another man would marry her, no duh. <laughs> I mean, we kind of have that assumption that she's going to move on, you know, eventually. But honeymooners, honeymooners were called to draw near to your wife. Honeymooners, draw near to your wife or, or your husband. It's interesting here because the Hebrew word for married literally means to take. Take my wife, please. And that's what it's saying here. Take your wife. If you're engaged to be married, you don't go to war. You stay home and take your wife. Draw near to her. Enjoy her. Be with her. And I think it would work either way. Ladies, take your husband. Draw near to him. Enjoy him. Be with him. Proverbs 5.18 says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Deuteronomy 24 verse 5 later will say, When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army, nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year, and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. And I wonder how many husbands after the first year have ceased to give happiness to their wives. I wonder how many of us guys got the woman, got into the marriage, and then left the whole thing behind. You know the whole the, the old adage of the guy who, whose wife says, you never see, I love you anymore. And he says, I said it on the day we were married, and if things change, I'll let you know. <laughs> Husbands, draw near to your wives. Let me ask you a question, guys. What will your wives say about you if you were taken out in battle today? What would be their sense of you? What would be their thoughts of you? And the life that you lived and the love that you did or did not give. This is so important because I believe we're about to engage in more ministry than has ever happened at the bridge. I feel I sense we're on the verge of so many things happening. We continue to see the Lord blessing in ways that are absolutely beyond me. I mean, really, gang, you should see some of the elders' meetings. You should. You should see some of the things that we talk about. I'm not picking on the other guys. I'm just talking about me coming into a meeting and throwing down a question. What are we going to do about this? And we all kind of go, Father, <laughs> straight to the Lord. Don't tell anyone, but we really don't have any idea what we're doing. <laughs> hey, let's, let's do a Bible study in a barn and see what happens. <laughs> and so God is at work here. And I know He's at work. And I know He's going to do wonderful things. But before we go to war... Before we're even called into service, before the opportunities to ministry will flourish, before the vineyard is full and the house is dedicated, guys, take care of your families. Love your wives. Let home be your first place of ministry. Before you go to war. The enemy is going to attempt to bring the battle directly against marriages here at the bridge. And the most important place that we can be serving, first and foremost, is right there in that marriage, in the home. Draw near. Now listen, I like most of you. (laughs) But there's no one here I'd rather spend time with than my wife. And I will defend that to the day that I die. There is no one I would rather be with than my wife. So if you call in the evening and you get the answer machine, chances are good that I'm with my wife. If you call on a Monday and you don't get any response until Tuesday or Wednesday, chances are good I was with my wife on Monday because she is a priority, not you. A lot of you are cute. None of you are as cute as she is. A lot of you are kind. None of you are as kind as she is. Nobody understands me like she does, which I know is a feat in and of itself. Honeymooners draw near to your wives. I really enjoyed, just recently I did um, Ben and Jenna Harris's wedding. And we had talked about, back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, how Moses is speaking to the people and he gives that great Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And that word one is ekad in the Hebrew. And ekad literally means a unity of oneness, that the man and the woman, they come together and they become one. But the fantastic thing about that game is that that word oneness is used both for God and for man and woman back in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2. 
that the two become one flesh, the child. That is how serious the Lord is about marriages. He says, for this reason, Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and become joined to his wife, and they shall become a child, one flesh, in the same way that the Lord our God is one. Father, Son, Spirit, a unity of oneness. So a man and a woman are supposed to be a unity of oneness. Turning your Bibles just for a moment to Matthew chapter 19. Again, keep your finger in Deuteronomy 20. Matthew 19. Verse 3. Says some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered, He said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of the hardness of heart, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. By the way, gang, did you know... The number one reason why marriages go south, why marriages fail, the number one reason, it's distance. It's just simply distance. It's when a husband and a wife cease to draw near to each other. You might say, well, I thought it was affairs. Affairs don't happen where the two are one. It's distance that causes the failure in marriages. And it could be life, it could be business, even family matters or friendships can get husbands and wives on what was once one track, different tracks. And there's danger in a marriage when you're living on parallel lives. Because the parallel in the slightest budge can start going this way and next thing you know, there's distance. We are not called in our marriages to live parallel lives. We are called to live one life at God. Understand that. Know that. It's so important for us to get. This is such a tragedy in the church today when the divorce rate among Christians is the same as among non-Christians. No difference. And so a non-Christian person would look at that and say, well, apparently being a Christian makes no difference in your life whatsoever if the same is true of Christians as it is for non-Christians. Now listen, the Spirit can make an absolute difference in your life and marriage if you're listening. Are you listening? Now I know in this group this morning there have got to be some marriages that are in trouble and struggling. And I want to encourage you to get back on the same track. To devote yourself. Don't devote yourself to finding out what's wrong with your mate. You devote yourself to being everything God has called you to be for your mate. You love Jesus and love your mate because you love Jesus. And allow the Lord to lessen the distance and bring you back together. A cod, one flesh. So important was that before they went to war, God said, you spend that first year together. And you connect. And you love each other. And you don't go anywhere. You work on being one. Before you deploy to war, draw near to your wife. Delight in the fruit of your labor. Dedicate your home. God wants you to enjoy His blessings. Now this is so amazing to me. God's boot camp. God's training ground for war is blessing first, battle later. And it's not the way that I think. I think, get them trained up and get them out as soon as possible. Someone becomes a Christian, great, set them into ministry right now. And the Lord is saying, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let them enjoy the fact that I've saved them. Let them be in relationship with me. Now, there are some of you here I know are thinking, look, I'm not married. Your spouse may have gone on before you. Maybe you're not a homeowner. Maybe you don't have a job. Maybe it's all three. I don't have a house, a spouse, or a job. <laughs> so this entire time this morning was an absolute waste of my time. Thanks a lot, Rick. See you later. <laughs> Listen, gang. What is it that what does it take to dedicate a house? What is it that is the real fruit of our labor? What is marriage truly all about? In all three cases, it's the same thing, and it applies to every single one of us. Relationship. Relationship. Relationship is where the blessing is. 
Relationship is where the blessing is. God says relationships are more important to me than war. More significant than taking ground. More lasting than right decisions, clever strategies, and brilliant plans. You want to know what's going to build a church like the bridge or any church? It's relationship, not strategies. It's people, not plans. We don't have to have a lot of newfangled ideas to grow a church. We just need to love people. Don't you want to be in a place where there's love? Where there's connection? Where there's a sense that you are important and you matter? That's what builds a church. Relationship. It's something everyone can delight in. One of my favorite times at the bridge, by the way, is Sunday mornings after worship and Wednesday nights after Bible study. Because I just kind of stand up here. I might be putting away the guitar or talking to someone, but I just see clumps of people everywhere, hanging out, talking, enjoying being together. I see cars left in the parking lot as people jump in cars together and go off to have lunch or whatever. And I think that is great. It's a relationship. It's getting to know, it's jumping over these barriers that we set up. Oh, I forgot that person's name. I better never talk to them again. <laughs> and we do that all the time, don't we? I'd really like to talk, but I'm going to look like a fool if I don't know their name. Look like a fool, will you please? I do all the time. <laughs> Hi, Pastor Rick. This is your first time at the bridge? No, I've been here for a year, Rick. All right. <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> Gang, in this place, the Lord would that homes are dedicated. Being opened up, having people in, consecrating that place. The Lord would that fruitful relationships are delighted in, and people are drawing near to people. And here's the surprising thing, again, about God's boot camp. The new home, the new vineyard, the new marriage, all took priority over fighting the battles. Because with the Lord, with the Lord... More than devotion to the battles of life, he invites us first to be delighted with his blessings. Isaiah 30 verse 18 says, The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He wants you to enjoy what he's given you, whether it be a marriage or a home or a job or whatever. God says, I've given you blessings. It's okay to enjoy it. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. But we can get so wound up in the war in believing everything is an attack everything is the enemy coming after me and we get so worried and so focused and, and, and there are those who get so off on service and ministry and doing, doing, doing and in the meantime all the blessings that God has given us are on the back burner and we're missing them we're missing the blessing of a family we're missing the blessing of a home even the blessing of work and I know some of you are still having a hard time with that concept <laughs> the blessing of work because i got to go there tomorrow but there is blessing there, gang. The Lord has placed you there. And He wants you to enjoy what He's given you. The Father would say, don't get so scattered in the skirmishes that you lose your delight in relationships. Because it's in relationships that the real battle, gang, is waged. Go enjoy your house dedicated to being a real home. Go enjoy your vineyard to lighten its fruit for a season. Go enjoy your wife. Draw it near to her in affection. Because the Lord is not into guilt-tripping people into service. The Lord starts by saying, go home. Enjoy the blessing. Get your house in order. Bear fruit in relationships. Nurture your marriage. The nurturing of relationships to build the kingdom before we go to war. Now, listen for a second. That's where I actually had finished, and then some things happened this week, and I began praying about some things and seeing some things, and I started reading a, just an incredible book that's recently been written, and, and God kind of changed some direction on me here, and I want to share a couple more things with you this morning. As often as the case, I've been asking this week again the question, Lord, what are you doing here? What are you doing at the bridge? What's your purpose here? What's your plan? What, what do you want to have happen here? And so I started reading this, this book by Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll is the pastor of Mars Hill Church down in the Seattle area. And you may have heard or read or seen on the internet the whole idea of the contemporary church growth movement versus what is now called the emergent church. 
There's another movement that's happening among churches today, and it's not the emergent church, and you need to draw a clear distinction here, because if you read about the emergent church, what that tends to be is pretty wild liberal theology. Jesus didn't really die on the cross for our sins. That kind of stuff. Mark Driscoll talks about the emerging or missional church movement, which is different than the emergent church, and I just want to draw that distinction. But let me tell you something I just read. I started reading this yesterday. My heart was just pumping. He said the following. He said the contemporary church growth movement and its evangelical seeker churches are attraction-based, meaning that the church functions as a purveyor of religious goods and services. Therefore, the primary task of these churches is to bring people from the culture into the church to partake of programming that targets their felt needs. Anybody been to a church like that? The contemporary church movement, and it probably draws back to late 80s, early 90s, and, and has been prevalent all the way up to today. And while that was all going on, I was in youth ministry and watching it, and very much a part of the contemporary church movement. The church I served at in California, we were one of those churches, man, programming to draw people in out of the culture into the church and to meet their felt needs. That phrase, felt needs, is a, is a buzzword for the contemporary church movement. But there's another movement that is changing things today, and it's the emerging or the missional church movement. It's what you would see in a church like a Mars Hill down in Seattle. But Mark Bristol says the following. He says, a contemporary church growth movement and his evangelical seeker churches. I already read that part, didn't I? Move on. He says, conversely, in, in contrast to the contemporary church growth movement, he says, emerging and missional churches see the church's primary task as, listen to this, Sending Christians out of the church and into the culture to serve as missionaries through relationships. Rather than bringing lost people into the church to be served by programming. I read that and I went, huh, that works. That's Jesus. Going to the culture as missionaries. Do you realize every single one of you, and this is why I talked about jobs this morning, every single one of you are missionaries for the Lord Jesus Christ in American culture. You're indigenous missionaries. Now, and Cheryl and I talked about mission work early on in our relationship, and I said, you know, the problem with me going to Africa is I am so darn white. <laughs> and everyone would know. But to serve here, no one notices the differences until I start talking, and then it gets weird. But they don't notice. I am one of the culture. This is where I live. These are my people. <laughs> and so I am an indigenous missionary in this culture. Every one of you are the same. Well, I go to church and I don't have anything to do there. I don't have a job and I, I don't have a title or a task or a role. You're a missionary. Go to work. Tell people about Jesus. Let them hear the name of Jesus on your lips constantly until they get bugged about it and say, okay, what's up with you? Who is Jesus and why is he so important to your life? Why do you always smile? Driscoll says the growing criticism between these camps, that is the contemporary church growth movement and the emerging church or missional church, is in large part, and I like this, unnecessary. Because they are working for the same goal. The reaching of lost people for Jesus. Their methods are complementary, not contradictory. We do want to bring people into the church. Why? So they can get Bible teaching, fellowship. There can be that sense of community. We see it in the first century church. There are those who argue against the idea of churches growing. Well, then you're going to have to argue with the first day of the church when 3,000 people were saved. God wants to grow His church and He wants a community of fellowship, but He also wants us out of the church serving and loving people and bringing Jesus to a lost and dying world. So you might say, okay, Rick, so what are you saying? You're reading a new book, so this is the new direction for the bridge? No, absolutely not. You might ask me, okay, so what is the bridge? Are we traditional evangelical? Contemporary seeker? Emerging missional? What's our classification? How about this? Simple biblical. I like that. Classifications, gang, are absolutely unnecessary. We are people who have been blood-bought by Jesus Christ, sent back into the world to tell people how to be blood-bought by Jesus Christ. It's that simple. And as long as we keep it simple and stay focused on God's Word and seeking His Spirit to lead us forward, He will make the bridge and any other church whatever He wants it to be. And isn't that the primary goal? 
to be who God wants us to be. And the Lord says, before you go to war, there are some blessings that I want you to embrace and I want you to recognize. Some relationships that I want you to nurture. I want this to be solid and loving. I want your homes to be the same so that as you go out as missionaries in this culture, you know what you're fighting for. When you go to war, you know what's back there. The husband who has spent a year loving his wife and then goes to war, man, he wants to fight and win so he can get back to his wife. The vine grower who has this amazing, beautiful vineyard, has tasted its fruit, has had some of its wine, and he's off the war thinking, man, I just want to be out in the vineyard again. And so he has something to fight for. The home builder who has a beautiful home on a mountain somewhere thinks about it and goes, I just want to put my feet up by the fire. He has a reason to fight. And God blesses and blesses and blesses. And then he says, go to war. Now you might say, well with this kind of thinking, no one's going to sign up for ministry at the bridge. And I say, hey, stop for a minute and consider what God has given you. Consider what the Lord has offered you in your life. Think about your blessings. And now you tell me, is it worth it serving the Father? I'm serving out of a place where I know I've been blessed. I'll tell you what, if you're drawing breath this morning, you have been blessed by the Father. If you opened your eyes to life this morning, you have been blessed by the Father. And He's called us to see the blessings. Side. To my mind, when it comes to people in ministry, and we talked about deacons the last couple of weeks, and we're looking into that and praying about it. In fact, on Tuesday night, our elders are going to meet and pray more and, and talk about that process. Please be praying for us that we would see what God wants us to see in terms of bringing servants in and involving people. But wouldn't you rather engage in service because you want to engage in service? Wouldn't you rather be involved in a church because you want to and not because you feel guilty? And so as a standard here, we want to avoid that, the idea of guilt. I want to see people serving out of blessing. God has done so much for me, I have to be here. I'm just showing up. I don't care if I don't do anything. I'm just going to be here because my wife is so blessed. For the man who fights willingly in battle also fights wonderfully. The person who wants to be there to serve the Lord is going to be so much more effective. And nothing prepares me for service or ministry or even battles like embracing my relationships and my blessings at home and in the workplace and in my marriage and among my friends and even with this silly dog. (laughs) Oh, I say silly affectionately. Come on. What other church has a dog just wandering around? It's not part of the plan. Someone just left the door open. That's all that is. Listen, one last thing here. Show me the person. Show me the person who recognizes their blessings in relationships. And I will show you an effective warrior for Jesus Christ. Something you may not have thought about before. In John chapter chapter 13, verse 3, we see Jesus again on the night that he was betrayed. And he is about to be taken to the cross. He knows this. He's fully aware of what's to come. And before he goes into that beautiful three-chapter encouragement of the disciples, in chapter 13, you may recall what he does. He washes the disciples' feet. But right before that, there's a little couple of verses that's easily passed over. Listen to it. John 13, verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel he girded himself and he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And I think that's fascinating. John, more than any other apostle, gives us insight into the mind of Jesus. And he says, hey, you want to know what Jesus was thinking right before he washed the apostles' feet? Here's what he was thinking. I'm not far from home. I've come from the Father. And I have this horrible stuff ahead of me. But I have a joy set before me. I'm going back to where I came from. I'm going home. This war, this battle, I'm going to fight. And I am going to die and bleed. But I'm going home. Jesus knew this, John tells us. 
Before the battle to take the hill of Calvary, Jesus knew where he had come from. And he knew where he was going. And it was in this knowledge that he poured out water into a basin and washed his disciples' feet. It was in this knowledge the next morning that he poured out blood onto the ground to wash us clean from all sin. He knew what the blessing was. So I believe the Lord would say to us, I have given you the blessing of relationship. Don't be blind to it. Don't miss it. Walk in it. Be Jesus in it. And understand 2 Corinthians 8 9, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for our sakes He became poor, so that we, through His poverty, might become rich. The blessing. Blessings before battles. Father, we just praise You and thank You so much that You love us enough to bless first. Father, where the, the human thinking of preparing for warfare is boot camp. It's hard. It's painful. It's challenging. It's harsh. And your training for this war is blessing. And Lord, I just pray that you will enter into our relationships in such a way that if there are risks, if there are problems, if there are conflicts in marriages, in our families, at work, Father, in our homes. I ask before anyone in a situation like that steps a foot into service that they will recognize the blessing. Lord, I realize I'm not in my marriage because I chose that marriage. And I, I did. But Lord, I know that you brought my wife into my life. And so I have to thank you for the blessing. And Father, in each and every relationship that we have, there's blessing. Would you give us eyes to see it? Even with a contentious person at work, Father, would you give us eyes to see them the way you do? To realize, Father, that, that in warfare, the people who reject and don't believe in Jesus are not the enemy, they are the hostages. Would you send us, Father, from a place of blessing and strength you just send us, Lord. And through relationships, I pray that you'd impact the world around us. If you're not a Christian this morning as we continue to pray, you can, you can be in Christ. It is so simple. Grace is not free, but He paid the price. All you have to do is give your life over to Him. Would you just pray these words with me in your heart to the Father? Lord, I'm a sinner. And I need to be forgiven I ask that you forgive me I believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God I believe Jesus you did go to Calvary for me and I do believe that death was a substitutionary death for me and I accept that this morning and I call on you now as my Lord and my Savior and I pray that you'll come into my life and change me from the inside out bring me into the blessing of relationship with you that I might learn how to serve you. In Jesus I pray. Amen.